From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey, always uh, a delight to do this, to kick off a show. We've got uh, three new affiliates to welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Let's start with KVSF. That's 101.5 FM in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And WEKY, 1340 AM in Richmond, Kentucky. And one more from the Bluegrass State. WIRV, 1550 AM in Irvine, Kentucky. So to Santa Fe, Richmond, Kentucky, Irvine, Kentucky, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, that is. Welcome, one and all. Great to be part of your lineup. And we look forward to adding more and more to the, uh, the growing family here at the uh, Conspiracy Show. You know, I'm looking outside here and the fog has been rolling in. It reminds me of that uh, 1980s John Carpenter film. I don't know if you ever saw The Fog with Adrian Barbeau and Jamie Lee Curtis and John Houseman. It's very, if you don't, if you get a chance to rent it, it's a rental, believe me. Uh, not that you're going to see it in the big screen anymore. I paid, back in the day, Tim, they had something called $2 Tuesdays when they were trying to get people to, to come to the theater in the mid, you know, during the week. So $2 Tuesdays. And that was one of the films that I saw on $2 Tuesdays, The Fog. And it was worth every dollar. <laughs> it's a great premise though. Uh, this former leper colony becomes shrouded in this, you know, killer fog and then, uh, all of a sudden these zombie-like ghosts who were, I, I think they were ghosts of pirates descend on this leper colony to seek out their revenge for some reason. I, I don't know. All I remember was Adrian Barbeau, of course, who used to be in, uh, that show Maud. She was Maud's daughter, Beatrice Arthur's daughter. Wonderful uh, looking lady. And she played this all night DJ in this little New England town. So, you know, here I am sitting in a theater or in a uh, radio studio and the fog is rolling in. Not that I'm Adrian Barbeau, but I'm just saying I'm getting a little nervous. Ah, uh, strange things going on, of course, everywhere and right here on this show sometimes. You know, and for decades, there have been persistent rumors, tales, legends that government agencies all around the world have been secretly collecting and studying data on bizarre beasts, amazing animals, and strange creatures. Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, sea serpents, get this, psychic pets, the Chubacabra, the Abominable Snowman, have all attracted official classified interest. And now for the first time, the full fearsome facts are finally revealed in our good friend Nick Redfern's Monster Files. Always a delight to have Nick with us on the program. He's the author of many books, including The Pyramids and the Pentagon, The Real Men in Black, The NASA Conspiracies, Keep Out, Contactees, Memoirs of a Monster Hunter, and The World's Weirdest Places. He's appeared on more than 70 television shows, including Fox News, BBC's Out of This World, History Channel's Monster Quest, America's Book of Secrets, Ancient Aliens, and UFO Hunters. He writes regularly for UFO, UFO Magazine, Mysterious Universe, and Fate, and he joins us from the great state of Texas. Nick Redfern, how are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing good, thanks. How's things? Terrific. Thank you. Good. I just I was uh, I was joking with not joking but mentioning uh, to George Chinescu, who is the host of the program that precedes mine how uh, you know you join me on the program and you're writing like must be two three books a year and just it's, I'm fascinated by the fact that you know you're originally from England and you find yourself in the middle of Texas as I mean do you ever do you ever you've been there now for a number of years but do you ever get over that culture shock I imagine it must be a, a huge culture shock well uh... I wouldn't say it's so much a shock. I mean, it's just, you know, there's a lot of differences. 
But I've been here 12 years now, and, um, you know, I live um, just on the outskirts of Dallas, so it's not like, you know, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I sort of grew up only about five or six miles from the English city of Birmingham, which is, you know, a huge city. So, and I've just, I just moved, traded one city for another, basically. So, uh, in that sense, you know, there's, there's some differences, and... Uh, and some similarities, you know, so, um, but I get back home quite a bit, so it's not like, um, you know, that much of a culture shock where I'm just sort of thrust from one to the other. I sort of, uh, you know, go back and catch up with friends on the, the gossip and whatever's going on, so. <laughs> well, uh, you know, Texas obviously has its uh, fair share of, you know, bizarre stories, so there's uh, obviously a lot, that's a, it's a rich mind or a rich vein to be mined there for you but congratulations on monster files oh thanks one of the things that jumped out at at me immediately was you know on this program over the years i've had pet psychics Mm -hmm. on the program uh but i've never even thought about psychic pets (laughs) what pray tell is a psychic pet and why is you know the government interested in psychic pets well this is a story that goes back to the early 1950s specifically 1952 and the chapter in the book is actually based on official files which have now surfaced through the freedom of information act and they relate to a, a small u.s army program little project that was initiated in 52 to try and determine if um, pets like dogs and cats uh, possessed esp and the whole point was to try, it was primarily focused upon dogs, but as I said, he did look at cats and even pigeons for some strange reason. But um, they primarily looked at pet dogs. And the, the idea was to try and see if there was any evidence that dogs possessed ESP because they wanted to try and train them to use their psychic powers, if they did, to try and find landmines on battlefields. Um, and it sounds bizarre concept until you sort of realize you know these are official documents and they talk about how they sort of befriended they don't actually say how but they got uh, the assistance of somebody who owned two german shepherd dogs one was now uh, called binny and the other one was called tessie and uh, some of the uh, aspects of the files are still blacked out and so they don't ex- exactly explain how they determined the dogs had psychic powers but evidently the military was satisfied and they launched a number of operations where the dogs would be sent out to areas of um, West Coach Beach along the coast of California. And the military would bury dummy landmines all around the beach, and in some cases actually out at sea, like about 30 or 40 feet out at sea, and about 10 feet down. And um, the, um, the dogs would go out, and apparently sort of about 70 or 80% of the time they would find them. And... Um, they actually ruled out that the dogs are using sort of their, you know, a powerful um, sense of smell to find the um, the mines, and actually concluded that they were done by psychic powers. Um, the the program was actually cancelled after about a year, unfortunately, because although the military concluded the project and the powers worked, they also conceded that the dogs couldn't control the you know their ability every time it was sort of hit and miss but when it worked it worked really well and when it didn't they just couldn't do anything about it and so they decided to go back to sort of the more conventional ways of spying on the enemy etc but it's kind of like an early precursor to the remote viewing programs of the 70s and 80s i was just going to say that yeah a lot yeah, of parallels like there human subjects but this was sort of this was 30 40 years before that just the turn of the 50s but actually using dogs instead of people. Well, of course, now uh, we know that dogs can be used mm-hmm. by people who 
suffer from uh, seizures, epileptic seizures. Yep. Dogs can actually predict when the seizure is coming on. They can detect breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that's intuitive or whether, again, that can be attributed to an incredible sense of smell, whether we're putting, you know, someone who has an epileptic seizure puts out some sort of a hormone. Yeah. Hard to say, but um, I think all of us who've ever had a pet can attest to the fact that they are incredibly intuitive. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that, I mean, in, in ways that are different to us, you know, their, their skills are far greater. I mean, their sense of smell you know, is incredibly stronger. You know, they hear different levels of, uh, you know, different pitches in terms of hearing, etc. Um, so in those respects, you know, that they may not, animals may not have the intelligence level we have, but a lot of them have skills that we don't. I mean, you take a spider, you know, there's no way a human being could ever spin a spider's web, you know. It's incredibly intricate, but we could never do it, you know, but, but a spider can. So. Well, I'm curious to know how you got a hold of these documents. I mean, are they widely available? Did you have to put in a Freedom of Information Act request? Yeah. And how? That, that's primarily what happened was it's like, I suppose, any aspect of investigative journalism is that, you know, if you get a snippet of a story or, you know, for example, some of the cases in the book, um, what happened was that I came across a reference in a file perhaps that had already been declassified that referenced another one. I mean, a, a good example um, is the, the British government's files on the Loch Ness Monster. There's an internal reference in, them, in one of the documents to an old sea serpent file put together by the British Navy, the Royal Navy, back in the 1800s. And so I then went searching, fishing, if you like, for that uh, file, and that opened doors to internal references to other files. So it was kind of like that, that once you sort of get hold of one file, very a lot of people don't realize, you know, that the, the document itself may reference other documents. And then, you know, it's a case of applying for them. So it's pretty much like, you know, you'd investigate. You know, I, I work also as a journalist and author, but, you know, if I was writing a, a feature for a newspaper on a murder or, a, you know, a, a bank robbery, you know, you'd follow the same sort of investigative techniques and just try and put the bigger picture together. And that's what chiefly opened the doors to these files. Nick Redfern is with us, the author of Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. Well, you mentioned the Loch Ness Monster. Tell us or give us a peek inside this document. I mean, was it just a passing reference? Do they have? I mean, it seems like military organizations or intelligence groups will study just about anything if they think it's of interest to the public. Uh, it may yeah. be more of a sociological type of, of project for them. But what interest did the military in Britain have with the Loch Ness Monster? Well, this actually goes back to the mid-1960s and an organization called JARIC. And JARIC stands for Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Center. And this is an arm of the British military that, you know, say, for example, there were rumors that, you know, at the height of the Cold War, the, the Soviets were building a new missile base or something like that. And they would send high-flying spy planes over to take pictures. Well, the guys at JARIC were the people who would analyze the pictures. In other words, they were sort of the elite of the British military when it comes to analyzing spy photographs and determining what the pictures show. You know, do they show missiles? Do they show evidence of hangars being built? That kind of thing. And in the mid-60s, um, there was a group within Jarrett that got interested in the Loch Ness Monster, and they acquired copies, and in some cases, the originals, of film footage and photographs purporting to show strange creatures in Loch Ness, and they actually spent a lot of time... Let me just jump in here, uh, Nick. Sorry to jump in and interrupt, but we'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll discuss the Loch Ness Monster when we return. Monster Files with Nick Ritfern here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And if you've ever wondered whether the Pentagon has the body of a Bigfoot on ice or what the U.S. military is hiding from us about lake monsters or what the link is between the CIA and the abominable snowmen, you've come to the right place. Nick Redfern has researched this extensively, and it's all to be found in his new book, Monster Files, A Look Inside Government Secrets and Classified Documents on Bizarre Creatures and Extraordinary Animals. And Nick, before the break, we were talking about the uh, British military and uh, the Loch Ness Monster, and they had obtained some footage of the Loch Ness Monster back in the 1960s. So I guess the question is, you know, why were they interested in it, and what exactly did they conclude? Well, it actually stemmed, uh, Richard, from a guy in the British Parliament, in the British government, who'd served in the military during the Second World War, and he developed an interest um, in the, the issue of the Loch Ness Monster and actually approached friends and colleagues in JARIC, this organization that analyzed film footage, and said, you know, I'm interested, in, would you be interested in sort of setting up a little program to look into it and they actually said yes we will you know it kind of sounded like an interesting diversion for them and, and this wasn't sort of like an outside of hours thing you know like a little off the record thing it was part of their official job and um the the people at jarrick um were sent various uh, pieces of film footage and photographs that had been shared um <clears throat> you know with, within the the ufo excuse me within the loch ness monster research arena if you like and because they had the tools and the technology to analyze film footage and blow it up and make the pictures clearer etc in um somewhere like seven or eight pieces of footage and photographs they were able to rule out for example things like wave formations uh, small boats that kind of thing and actually concluded that the pictures showed or the film showed creatures um that seemed to be under intelligent control anywhere from about 12 to 15 feet long, and that seemed to be partly out of the water, but with significant portions of the body under the water and leaving wakes that seemed to be evidence of, of a living animal rather than, as I said, like a small boat. Now, you know, when you consider that the, the caliber of the people doing the analysis, um, as I said, you know, the elite of the British military's photo analysts, then it really sort of makes you realize that you know, when you've got people of that caliber investigating things and coming to those conclusions, it sort of really does add weight to the the credibility of the mystery, if you like. And it also causes one to wonder, you know, what else do they have uh, locked in those files that we don't know about that they won't release? And well, I- there are actually a file, uh, or files, I should say, from the 1980s and the 1990s on the Loch Ness Monster. We know all of those haven't yet been released. One of them um, was related to a project that was actually cancelled before it began. It was seen as being too sort of unfeasible. But the idea was the British government under the, uh, when Margaret Thatcher was in power, uh, was basically to try and train dolphins uh, to swim in Loch Ness and look for the creatures, if you like. And the plan was to have them fitted with sonar equipment and cameras that could be automatically, um, you know, remote sensor to take pictures, etc. In, in the event they came across anything. But reading the file, it doesn't look like there's much uh, thought was given to the idea, well, what happened if the, you know, the dolphins and the Loch Ness Monsters confronted each other? You know, it might not come off the best of the dolphins. And so the program was sort of quietly shut down. But it was intriguing that, you know, the government of the day spent quite a bit of money sort of researching how to get the dolphins, you know, and how to strap them with all this equipment and train them in Loch Ness. And it was all done 
under the under the cloak of secrecy throughout the 1980s. I wish the uh, you know the intelligence groups and the military would leave the poor dolphins alone. First of all, of course, in the, in the early 1960s, we had uh, Operation Mongoose, where they were going to try and train dolphins to assassinate Castro yeah. when he went for his morning uh, dip in the uh, uh, Atlantic or the Caribbean or whatever it was. And now they want dolphins to track down the Loch Ness monster. Uh, and of course, we just had. Um, we have this new theory uh, about the Loch Ness monster that's just surfaced. Pardon the pun. Uh, that Nessie is just essentially bubbles uh, produced by some seismic activity on the floor of, uh, of Loch Ness. What do you what do you make of that? Uh, not much. Uh, <laughs> um, um, you know, I think there's absolutely no doubt that you know there are a lot of cases regarding Loch Ness monster can be explained as things like. Um, sort of freak waves, you know, where the waves sort of roll and it looks like something snaking along the water. Um, you also get trees, you know, that decay, rot and fall into Loch Ness and then as the vegetation rots and, you know, the gas gets leaked, etc., they do sometimes float to the surface. And so, you know, you can see like an eight-foot long tree trunk. Um, so things like that do happen and occasionally you get seals in Loch Ness, which, okay, they're much smaller but at a distance, you might think something like that was a Loch Ness Monster. However, when you get credible people talking about seeing like a hump and a large neck sticking anywhere from sort of two to five feet out of the water, and the neck is associated with the hump as well, then it's very difficult to sort of reconcile that with just bubbles, you know what I mean? That That's clearly a sighting of something solid, and tangible, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. I was mentioning, you know, the and it's on, on the back of the book, uh, cribbing from the back of the book, does the Pentagon have the body of Bigfoot on ice? It's a very provocative <laughs> uh, question. So let me ask you, I mean, when you dug into this, what what does the, the U.S. government know about Bigfoot, and do they, in fact, you suspect, have a body well, on ice? Well, you know, they may, they may well have. This story goes back to 1980, May 1980, when in Washington, state, the uh, Mount St. Helens, which had been sort of rumbling and bubbling with volcanic activity for a while, suddenly catastrophically exploded. There was this huge volcanic eruption that literally blew away part of the mountain, and it sent ash and dust and dirt and debris literally thousands of feet into the air above Mount St. Helens and actually killed somewhere in the region of about 60 people who refused to leave their homes and didn't sort of heed the warnings as to what was going to happen. Um, and, of course, you know, anybody who lived through that pier will probably remember the whole Mountain Helens disaster. Um, but in addition to the people who were killed, the uh, wildlife records suggest there was somewhere in the region about a 1,000 elk were killed and tens of thousands of smaller animals as well. And, of course, there were a lot of emergency services and the military in there lending hand and assistance, you know, to help the people and even the animals, you know, that had been injured, etc. And... Since literally almost in just a couple of months after Mount St. Helens occurred and right through to the present day, we have reports from probably about nine or ten retired military personnel who said that they were in the area at the time helping these uh, sort of emergency procedures um, when they either saw or were told by colleagues of these large double rotor military helicopters coming in with these very powerful nets and airlifting these dead bodies of what were described as like gigantic hairy apes or what, like giant hairy humanoid creatures out of the area. And, you know, the rumor is from there that they were taken to military bases for secret autopsies. Now, 
This is one of the cases in the book, as I point out, where we don't have the documents. We just have the testimony, which doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's not credible. You know, there are a lot of good cases on record where, you know, the, the witness testimony is the most important thing of all. Um, and I think it's intriguing that, you know, we get different soldiers and different military personnel giving their own opinion but from their own perspective as well. You know, if everybody was saying exactly the same thing from the same angle, etc., that would be a bit suspicious. But it makes more sense and adds to credibility when somebody knows about the area where it occurred, somebody else knows something of the autopsy, somebody else talks about where the bodies were taken, which is what you would expect, you know, if they were involved in, from the perspective of different units, etc. But it basically comes down to the military reportedly finding somewhere in the region perhaps five or six bodies and incredibly maybe a, a couple of injured ones that survived and airlifting them out and trying to figure out what they were but the big question is you know why would that be hidden you know why hide the fact that north america has a giant ape well one of the other things i point out in the book is that this gets in really controversial areas but there are a lot of cases on record where bigfoot has actually been seen in the same time and location as UFO activity, mm, exactly, yes. rise to the idea that could Bigfoot be something connected with that, or a paranormal creature, and that might that might explain the secrecy. You know, if it was just a giant ape, it would be a, it would be a zoological discovery. You know, it wouldn't be something for the Pentagon to hide. But maybe if you know you have these weird UFO overtones to the mystery of Bigfoot, that might be a reason on its own. You know, this is a fascinating chapter. I mean, this is almost this one incident with all of these military eyewitnesses is almost worthy of a, a full-length, you know, treatment all on its own, don't you think? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, if more information came through, I mean, granted, it probably could be. I mean, what, what I've done in that chapter pretty much uh, amounts to, a little bit in summary form, it amounts to all the information we have so far. But, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's one of these cases, like many, where it starts off with just a few snippets and a couple of witnesses, and then somebody goes digging into it, and they find more and more. You know, I think ideally it would probably be more suited to somebody who actually lives in that area, you know, and who can chase down every lead. Um, I think that would be the ideal way to do it. But, you know, it's like Roswell. That started off with just, like, one or two people who spoke out, and then eventually, you know, it amounted to hundreds. So it wouldn't be impossible, you know, that if somebody really wanted to get on the tail of this story and, you know, the Mountain Helens Bigfoot autopsies, etc., that, you know, they might open a huge can of worms. Well, there's your assignment, Nick. Go to it. <laughs> As if you're not busy enough. But, uh, you know, to me, that is a, a story that definitely needs to be fleshed out. i got to ask you about this, and, and that is this uh, U.S. Army Major Edward Lansdale, the brains behind a monstrous vampire. Uh, let's We're going to come up on a break in about five minutes, but let's get this story started sure. anyway. All right, well, Lansdale um, was, in the 1950s and 60s, he was sort of brilliant um, officer, if you like, or strategist in the field of psychological warfare. That's basically sort of trying to defeat the enemy by very alternative means that don't always or, or ever, you know, involve, like, guns, but, um, bombs, bullets, whatever. It's essentially trying to play with the mind of the enemy to try and confuse them and manipulate them. And Lansdale worked on a number of programs which involved the, the spreading and sort of creation or re-emerging of, of myths and folklore to try and frighten um, particularly superstitious enemy nations and, and troops. 
And the one um, particular case that I talk about in the book, this involved an operation that Lansdale was involved in in the Philippines in the early 1950s. And there was an uprising by what were called the Huck Rebels, which is H-U-K. And the Philippine government asked America, you know, can you help us defeat these rebels? And, you know, the, the American government said, yes, you will be happy to. And as well as sending military personnel in, uh, they sent Lansdale in. He actually became quite good friends with, the Philipp- with high-ranking people in the Philippine government and military. And he said, well, you know, do the Hook Rebels have any particular superstitions that we can sort of work on and perhaps exploit them that way? And they said, well, yes, they have a great fear of this creature known as the Aswang Vampire, which is A-S-W-A-N-G. And it was supposedly like a, like a terrible, terrifying blood-sucking creature or creatures that lived in the forests of um, the Philippines. And so Edward Lansdale had a brilliant idea to try and bring the Aswang vampire to life. And he did it in a very, very strange and alternative fashion. And um, the fashion was that, you know, regardless of whether there were any realities behind these rumours and myths of this blood-sucking creature, um, Lansdale came up with this sort of fascinating idea to create this device which would sort of mimic the mark of a vampire you know it sort of it would shoot these two powerful sharp prongs into the neck of a person which would give the, you know the image of like the classic vampire fangs and the bite etc and so they they had this device specifically crafted by military intelligence and they sent like a delta force team out into the forest to find the nearest huck rebel camp and late at night, after the sun had set, they grabbed the nearest hot rebel um, and pulled him out into the woods, killed him, and jabbed him in the neck with this device. Then they hung his body up from a tree by his ankles and drained the blood out of the neck wound, which is like a large and you know gaping wound. And then, while it was still under the cover of darkness, the next morning, and before the morning, I should say, they took the body back to the camp, knowing it would be found by his friends and colleagues and of course it struck fear into them their colleague you know drained of blood looking pale with these wounds on his neck and they fled the area and of course the area they fled was key strategic ground that the um philippine government wanted back and, and they got it back and they kept doing this time and time again pushing back the hook rebels by spreading more and more of these sort of fake vampire killings etc that is a fascinating... T- that's a long way to go. Uh, <laughs> however, uh, it proved very effective, and, and one has to also wonder then if, if uh, the military has used... This is you know, obviously not uh, a part of what you're talking about in this book, but the, the whole UFO phenomenon. Many people have, have uh, theorized uh, that the military is doing exactly the same thing with, with UFOs, using it as a cover story. Yeah. However, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about the big cats in the UK and how this controversy actually uh, goes right to the heart of the royal family. Nick Redfern, author of Monster Files, a look inside government secrets and classified documents on bizarre creatures and extraordinary animals. Stay with us. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's more numbers. 416-360-0740. 
Nick Redfern stays with us, the author of Monster Files. Let me just crib here from one of the chapters, The ABCs of a Royal Conspiracy. In the late 1980s, English monster hunter Jonathan Downs became personally embroiled in a controversy that began with the investigation of a mysterious large cat or cats on the loose in Britain and which ultimately extended into the heart of the British monarchy, military and government and the domain of deep and dark official Secrecy. Of course, uh, Nick, uh, in the UK, they have this phenomenon called uh, alien big cats, or ABCs. And, of course, Britain is not home to an indigenous uh, population of a large cat, uh, panthers or, or cougars or jaguars or, what, or tigers or what have you. And yet, uh, hundreds of witnesses claim that they have seen these, uh, these big animals. Now, first of all, uh, what does this alien big cat story have to do with the royal family? Well, that's a good question. It's a sort of a strange story, but John Downs, who you just mentioned, is a good friend of mine. John runs a group, a uh, full-time uh, group called the Centre for Fortean Zoology, named after Charles Fort, an early 20th century investigator of strange phenomena. And you're right that every year in Britain we get hundreds of reports of these so-called alien big cats. And other than house cats in Britain, you know, pet cats, there shouldn't be anything roaming around, you know, like a like a mountain lion or anything like that at all, or a black leopard, but people see them. Um, the only wild cat in Britain is called the Scottish wild cat, but even that is barely any bigger than a normal house cat. You know, you wouldn't even look twice at it. It's quite fierce, but, uh, but it's not, you know, of any size at all. So it's sort of a bit of a conundrum that people see these things, and some people think they're sort of third and second or third generation escapees from private zoos, which may be the case in some of them, some of the reports, and others, you know, which don't know where they're from, but people see enough of them every year, and even, you know, the police report them as well. Um, so it's clearly a phenomenon. Now, in the late 1980s, John got a call from a former uh, British Army intelligence operative who'd been involved in an operation in the mid-1980s to shadow and follow uh, Princess Diana. Um, and this goes back to around about 1984, 1985, when apparently the British government heard rumours that terrorists were planning on either kidnapping or assassinating Princess Diana. So what they did, they set up like a small military intelligence unit to watch her carefully, everywhere she went and Diana herself apparently didn't know anything about this you know sort of just shadowing her every movement um, and this it gets into controversial areas because as is known today but wasn't known then but this was revealed to John that this all relates to um, when Diana and Charles's marriage was sort of on the rocks and you know she'd been seeing a few other people and the military knew about this because they'd been watching her so you know they it was a case where they didn't <laughs> they didn't say anything uh, so they kept quiet about that, you know, and just referenced it presumably in internal files that, you know, Diana had been to, to this sort of clandestine meeting with one of her boyfriends. Um, and they followed uh, on one occasion to the walls of, of Dartmoor in Devonshire, England, which is looks straight out of, you know, the Hound of the Baskervilles, which is actually where the Hound of the Baskervilles is set. And on one occasion, when they were watching the property where Diana was staying, uh, through night scope equipment, you know, with, with rifles, etc., you know, just keeping a lookout for terrorists, etc., they saw this huge black cat prowling around the grounds of the property. And they described, the, the uh, guy who spoke to John described it as like a, a huge body, like about six feet long, very muscular, thick neck, 
and a long, powerful tail. You know, it looked just like a, a huge black jaguar or something like that. And the military, of course, was in a total quandary. They didn't know whether to shoot it and then risk giving away why they were there. And if, they, if that came out and the media got hold of it, number one, the media would have realized that Diana was being watched and this whole terrorist story would have come out. Number two, it would have revealed to the media that, you know, Diana was seeing somebody behind Charles's back and that would have come tumbling out. So this unit decided the best thing to do was to do nothing and say nothing and just hope that the cat went on its way. This was like two in the morning or three in the morning. And he actually did. He sort of prowled around, presumably, you know, looking for small animals to eat and then wandered off, you know, into the foggy moors and was not seen again. Um, but John got this story, the whole thing, in 1989. And this was long before Diana herself, you know, confessed to them. Yes, yeah, she had, you know, boyfriends on the side, etc. So that in itself actually added credibility to the story. But it was sort of a fascinating one because it had so many twists and turns, you know, going from Diana's private life to military intelligence uh, shadowing her, you know, and a national security issue with her possibly being, uh, you know, an attempted kidnapping or something like that. Indeed, and, and uh, it's, it's fascinating, you know, despite the fact that we've had hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness uh, sightings of these big cats, alien big cats in the UK, uh, it's not until someone in the military uh, comes forward and, or some document is released that uh, we give greater, greater credence uh, to it. Uh, however, I, I, I feel, you know, at this point there's not much doubt that there are no, there's not. these huge jungle cats roaming England. How they got there, that's the mystery. Nick Redfern stays with us, the author of Monster Files, here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Nick Redfern stays with us for just a few moments uh, yet. Just a reminder that uh, starting next week, I will be broadcasting from the Elite Hotel in Kalamata, Greece. That's located in uh, southern Greece, in Messenia. Uh, if you look at a map and you see uh, at the bottom of Greece those sort of five fingers uh, sticking uh, out like a hand, uh, that those... Um, those fingers, that's, that's Messenia, beautiful uh, a part of uh, uh, Greece, and that, of course, is the mighty Aphrodite's ancestral homeland. So I will be there, uh, as I say, broadcasting live for the next five weeks. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be with us, media scientist Nelson Thal talking about the lunar landing hoax. The Liberty Man, John Moore, will be along to talk about Planet X. Uh, Jim Elvidge from the Universe Solved uh, with some fascinating uh, stories about our mysterious uh, universe and much more. Oh, Ron Patton from Paranoia Magazine. Uh, so be sure to tune in. And uh, uh, we'll be actually leaving tomorrow uh, with the, the Twin Boys. And uh, can't wait to get there. The land of the olive and uh, uh, the birthplace of democracy and philosophy and uh, Herodotus, Socrates, Plato. Just so much everywhere you step. It's just History, history everywhere. All right, Nick Redfern, I got to ask you about the uh, this strange character Frank Hansen, who claimed that he was in possession of a uh, a primitive humanoid that I guess he he uh, that was preserved in a block of ice that he plucked out of the uh, the the water around the uh, the, the coast of Siberia. Uh, tell me about this story, Nick. Yeah, this goes back to the uh, mid-1960s, a controversial story concerning something be that became known as the Minnesota Iceman. And Frank Hansen actually lived in Minnesota, and he was someone who put on, like a lot of 
entertaining displays at state fairs, you know, not sort of like, you know, the old style so-called freak shows, but, you know, there'll be things like two-headed snakes on display and that sort of thing, you know, and is it real or is it fake, that kind of thing. Um, and in the mid-1960s, um, Hansen started showing this thing that became known as the Minnesota Iceman, and it looked just like a large humanoid hair-covered creature encased in a block of ice. Um, and there were various theories as to what it was and where it came from. One was that it was actually shot somewhere in the forests of Minnesota. Another theory, an interesting one, was that it was actually killed in the jungles of Vietnam during the Vietnam War and smuggled back um, in a body bag and supposedly transferred to a rich millionaire that Hansen was in touch with who eventually allowed Hansen to put it on display, display briefly. And in the mid-60s, it was actually seen by a couple of well-respected cryptozoologists. Um, Bernard Hovelmans um, was one of them. He's a very uh, well-respected cryptozoologist. And he essentially said that when he examined it, he could actually sort of smell the stench of rotten meat coming through the ice, which if it was a model, you know, that would be sort of a very sophisticated technique. But he said it looked very real. You know, it looked um, like some sort of hair-covered primitive humanoid creature. And it was put on display for years. And eventually, uh, or ultimately, I should say, the the real one, if you like, was supposedly transferred back to the millionaire, and then you know the the model, uh, a model equivalent of it, was put on display instead. And of course, you know there are people who said that there was only ever a model, but you can actually see the model version there. It's on display at a place called the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, and you can go down there and sort of see it still encased in ice to this day. Um, so we're not sure what it was. But what we know, the reason I mention this in the book, is because when rumours started floating around that it was a primitive humanoid and that it was shot and killed, you had all the bureaucracy started asking questions, well, does that mean there was a murder involved? Even if it was a primitive human, it was still a human. And actually, the FBI got involved and opened a small file on it and actually sent one of their agents out to visit Frank Hansen, which kind of, you know, I guess sort of scared him basically that's the best way to describe it you know in his own words he was sort of very worried when he found out the fbi was asking questions about him and the minnesota Iceman. and eventually an agent went round and looked at it and threw the ice and said well you know it doesn't look human it's not and it's not part of our jurisdiction if it's just you know a hairy oddball creature and they satisfied him and just left and I think Frank Hansen basically sort of breathed a deep sigh of relief at the fact that, um, you know, he was sort of left alone. But it was one of these sort of bizarre and surreal episodes where a sort of a circus freak creature encased in ice actually attracts the, the attention of the FBI. Uh, certain locations seem to attract a strange uh, strangeness, and, and uh, West Virginia is one of those places. I'm, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a, re- a, re- a regular uh, visitor to the program, has written an entire book just about the strange creatures that come out of West Virginia. We're all, of course, familiar with the uh, the, the, uh, the Mothman and yeah. uh, down in uh, uh, Mount uh, Point Pleasant, rather. They have their annual Mothman uh, convention. And of course, it was celebrated in a famous, uh, you know, the book and the, the movie, The Mothman Prophecies. But uh, something else strange going on in West Virginia. Uh, oh, I guess about cl- closing in on about 30 years ago, this all sort of kicked off with the discovery of a couple of German shepherds found the mutilated corpses found completely drained of blood. And uh, this wasn't the Mothman people were seeing. What was it? Well, yeah, this is a creature that um, a lot of people described as similar to Mothman. Many people don't realize that you know, creatures like Mothman have been reported 
all around the world, and you can find them throughout culture and mythology and folklore, dating back thousands of years. You know, if you look at things, for example, like harpies and gargoyles, you know, they actually have some very deep similarities with some of the creatures that people see today, like the Mothman. But the one you're talking about, yeah, this was, this was a creature very much like Mothman, um, and probably with hindsight, more like the, the so-called creature in the Jeepers Creepers movies, if you've ever seen any of those. Sort of like a large humanoid, but with these bat-like wings that sort of showed membranes and like a leathery type appearance. And the story was that... Um, the attacks had actually occurred near a government facility um, where a number of dogs had been killed and people had seen this creature sort of rather ironically on what was always like a dark and stormy night, you know, when the wind was blowing and the clouds were falling, you know, just sort of like a, a thunderous evening. And they would see this creature sort of um, hovering around the facility or in one case actually sort of prowling around on the roof of it and then it sort of just soared off into the sky. Um, you know, just like some sort of, you know, 1500s gargoyle or something along those lines. And again, reportedly, when these animals attacks occurred and the fact that these sightings occurred in the vicinity, direct vicinity of a government facility, um, an investigation was undertaken by the authorities and all the eyewitnesses who worked there were interviewed and asked to prepare like a summary report. And the upshot of it was, was that you know, it just baffled the the security people and everybody involved. The, the fact that they didn't really know what to do with it other than collate the reports and try and make some, some sense of it. But, you know, when you're dealing with sightings of a like a large-winged humanoid monster in the vicinity of a government facility, there's really not much sense you can make of it. And the sightings, like with Mothman in Point Pleasant, they actually just came to a grinding halt and whatever the creature was, it, it left. But apparently, there was something like a, like a 20 or 30 page file put together that contained all the various reports from the from the government eyewitnesses. Didn't a similar creature though end up in your uh, parts in Houston? Yeah, there's a, a again what I talk about in the book, uh, sort of deep similarities to this. It became known as the Houston Batman, and um, this actually predates Mothman by about 15 years. It was seen in Houston in the early 50s. And um, the description is very similar. It's like a, a large humanoid with glowing eyes that would sort of prowl in the woods and it would occasionally seem perched on trees. And, and people still report this to this day, this sort of giant humanoid creature that they occasionally report seeing, you know, against a backdrop of like a full moon where it suddenly appears, you know, when it's, it's lit up by the moon. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of these things all over the planet and, um, you know, not just Point Pleasant. Well, after after researching uh, for the book, Nick, what what was your your takeaway? I mean, a great line here on the back is: despite what your parents might have told you when you were a child, monsters, creepy creatures, and terrifying beasts really do exist, and our governments know all about them. I mean, is that the takeaway? Is that true? Yes, I mean, you know, cryptozoology, Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, chupacabra, late monsters. You know, there's there's enough credible witness testimony, in my view, to suggest these creatures, animals, however you want to term them, are real. And the very fact that many of the cases I refer to in the book um, come via official freedom of information documentation that surfaced, then that adds further credence. And, um, you know, I think what we're actually seeing is the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's lots been written over on Bigfoot over the years. Very little has been written on what the government knows about it. So, you know, I think even I'll admit to having 
as someone who's written a book on it, you know, we're still in the early stages of research into this field, but I think it's going to be sort of like a, a fertile one for, you know, far deeper research as well in the future. Well, that's good news for Nick Redfern and for all of us who uh, who enjoy your books. What's up? What's up next, Nick? What are you working on now? I'm working on a couple of UFO ones. Uh, I'm doing one uh, Men in Black book. I've done a couple of Men in Black books, but I'm working on another because I get so many reports. And the other one um, is like a study of um, UFO cases where the files have suspiciously vanished. You know, it's like the exact opposite of Freedom of Information where we've got the files. This is where files, we know they existed or should have existed, and they've just sort of they've vanished. You know, we just don't know where they are. Were you able to cover any of the uh, the citizen hearing on UFO disclosure? No, I wasn't, unfortunately, no. I, I, I wasn't at that, so, you know, I just sort of read it all online like everybody else. Well, I mean, what is your sense uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the the momentum that the disclosure movement seems to be gathering? Do you, do you, do you get a well, sense that, that they're making any progress, that maybe the government in the United States uh, will um, disclose at some point? Well, you know, I think in, in terms of the the idea in general, it's a great one, and there's, a, there's no doubt there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it, and that's a very good thing. You know, without enthusiasm, without pushing, we're not going to get anywhere. The only downside, as I see it, is that I'm not convinced that, you know, it's the government per se that's actually hiding the truth. You know, everybody points finger at the government and says, oh, they're the bad guys. I actually don't think when it comes to the UFO subject that is the case. I think... The real deep secrets are hidden by, you know, almost like a secret government within government, if you see what I mean, rather than the elected authorities being the people who are hiding it. So, you know, I think knocking on the door of the White House or Buckingham Palace or wherever, you know, certainly gets publicity and it may open some doors. But I think that really deep secrets aren't held by these agencies. They're held by these sort of black box type groups, you know, and there's a black box within a black box, that kind of thing. And, and I don't, I think these people, they're not going to give up the secrets until they're ready to, no matter how many people go hammering on the door, unfortunately. But in saying that, you know, any exposure and publicity is good. And, you know, the, the disclosure movement, is demonstrating that and also by the fact you know they have a lot of credible military and government people testifying to of, you know it, it's um, really a shame that you weren't called to testify nick because i don't know of anyone out there who's written it so extensively or is who's, who has dedicated so much of his time and research into the whole you know men in black phenomenon what just i mean just in the the minute that we have left uh do you think that these this you know this uh whether or not they the whole uh, UFO file has gone, you know, into the, into private hands. You know, the uh, the the research and development uh, wing of various, you know. Yeah, I actually do think I think it's gone in partly into private enterprises and also sort of black projects. You know, there's like so-called these so-called black projects that aren't answerable to Congress, and Congress doesn't even necessarily know they exist. You know, and they're buried so deep that even the elected government isn't necessarily aware of them and I think it's there where the secrets are found but of course that is an incredibly deep, uh, difficult world to sort of to look into because you know how can you look into a project when you don't even know it officially exists that's the problem I think we're facing you know exactly well Nick listen uh, look forward to your uh, next book as always and congratulations once again on Monster Files All right. thanks a lot Richard always appreciate it Nick Redfern thanks. 
The Conspiracy Show, your portal into the program, our website, www.richardserrett.com, and say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett.